All right. We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul here doing The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. This segment is called The Racial Contract as a Theory is Explanatory explanatorily superior to the raceless social contract in accounting for the political and moral realities of the world and in helping to guide normative theory. And we are on page... Some of the most concise chapter titles I've ever encountered. Yes, yeah, and lengthy. All right, so we're starting at the bottom of page 124, um, it's possible we will complete the book today. We'll see. Um, so, Paul, do you want to start her off here? I would love to. Let's do it. All right. Think of the rich, colorful tapestry over the last two centuries of abolitionism. Racial vindicationism, aboriginal land claims, anti-temperial and anti-colonial movements, anti-apartheid struggle, searches to reclaim racial and cultural heritages, and ask yourself what thread of it ever appears within the bleached weave of the standard first world political philosophy text. It is undeniable, one would think, that these struggles are political, but dominant categories obscure our understanding of them. They seem to be taking place in a different conceptual space from the one inhabited by mainstream political theory. One will search in vain for them in most standard histories and contemporary surveys of Western political thought. The recent advent of discussions of multiculturalism is welcome, but what needs to be appreciated is that these are issues of political power, not just mutual misconceptions resulting from the clash of cultures. To the extent that race is assimilated to ethnicity, white supremacy remains unmentioned and the historic racial contract prescribed connection between race and personhood is ignored. These discussions, in my opinion, fail to make the necessary drastic theoretical correction. Thus, they still take place within a conventional, if expanded, framework. If I am right, what needs to be recognized is that side by side with the existing political structures familiar to all of us, the standard subject matter of political theory absolutism and constitutionalism, dictatorship and democracy, capitalism and socialism, there has also been an unnamed global political structure, global white supremacy. And these struggles are in part struggles against this system. Until the system is named and seen as such, no serious theoretical appreciation of the significance of these phenomena is possible. You know, it gets to a point where obviously we don't have much to add to how well he can write and summarize these concepts, but it's just over 20 years since this book was published, and it's disheartening to think of how little progress we've made in framing things. Yep. But um, yep. I guess depressing is the word, or yeah, I'm not sure. And I just feel so weird because there were definitely times where I was convinced uh, we had made great racial strides, you know, the Obama era did a good job of convincing not paying attention me um, that we had moved on as a society and not realizing that just even thinking it was possible to move on in this structure, I was part of that problem, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I can't say for sure that it's worse now than it was in 1997, uh, but I, I do feel confident that it, it sure hasn't gotten better. Yeah, for sure. Fuck. Uh, another virtue of the racial contract is that it simultaneously recognizes the reality of race, causal power, theoretical centrality, and demystifies race, positing race as constructed. Historically, the most influential theories of race have themselves been racist, 
varieties of more or less sophisticated biological determinism, from naive pre-Darwinian speculations to the later more elaborated views of 19th century social Darwinism and 20th century Nazi uh, Rassenkunde, race science. To speak of race theory in the officially non-racist climate of today is thus likely to trigger alarm bells. Hasn't it been proven that race is unreal? But is it a false dichotomization to assume that the only alternatives are race has non-existent and race has biological essence? Contemporary critical race theory, of which this book could be seen as an example, adds the adjective specifically to differentiate itself from the essentialist views of the past. Race is sociopolitical rather than biological, but it is nonetheless real. That's so important. Yeah, that's a really important thing. Obviously, it's pretty easy to comprehend that race uh, is a, a human construct, uh, but a lot of the things we deal with are human constructs, and a lot of those things almost end up being more tangential to a human than natural constructs or, yeah, I think that's just a really important thing to point out um, and something that I encounter in discussions today uh, pretty frequently, actually. Absolutely. Thus, on the one hand, unlike mainstream white theory, liberal and radical the radical contract or the the racial contract sees that race and white supremacy are themselves critical theoretical terms that must be incorporated into the vocabulary of an adequate socio-political theory that society is neither just a collection of atomic individuals nor just a structure of workers and capitalists on the other hand the racial contract demystifies race distancing itself from the oppositional biological determinisms, melanin theory, sun people, and ice people, <laughs> and occasional deplorable anti-Semitism of some recent elements of the black tradition. As the 1960s promise of integration fails, and intransigent social structures and growing white recalcitrance are increasingly conceptualized in naturalistic terms. The racial contract thus places itself within the sensible mainstream of moral theory by not holding people responsible for what they cannot help. Even liberal whites of goodwill are sometimes made uneasy by racial politics because an unsophisticatedly undifferentiated denunciatory vocabulary, white, does not seem to allow for standard political moral distinctions between a politics of choice, absolutist and democrat, fascist and liberal, for which it is rational that we should be held responsible, and a skin color and phenotype that, after all, we cannot help. Uh, once again, just another huge point. Um, and I think kind of today, a good example, or maybe I'm just not understanding, would be like the Blue Lives Matter sort of movement, where it's like, hold on, you're trying to equate that to Black Lives Matter, and you just seem to miss the huge differentiating uh, factor of choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nobody was forced to be a cop i have never uh I, I shouldn't say nobody i've never lived in a place or encountered a group of people uh where um members were forced into law enforcement yeah there is a choice in that it's an organization you choose to join uh, and that happens for a lot of things that the the hegemony in america often screams victimhood over same with religion it's all these things where it's like yes do you not understand that the key differentiating factor is that you chose to be a part of those groups and you could choose to leave those groups uh whereas skin color or our racial contracts are constructs are something that you have no choice about whatsoever you just can't see that difference yeah 
Yeah, well, and people, and I think what he's talking about is white people being uncomfortable with race politics because uh, they can't help the fact that they're white. And the the distinction is, you know, needs to be made between, like he's talked about before, signatories and non-signatories and, you know, the idea of like capital yeah. W whiteness. Versus lowercase. Right, exactly, exactly. And that's super yeah. important. By recognizing it as a political system, the racial contract voluntarizes race in the same way that the social contract voluntarizes the creation of society and the state. It distinguishes between whiteness as a phenotype genealogy and capital W whiteness as a political commitment to white supremacy, thus making conceptual room for white renegades and race traitors. And its aim is not to replace one racial contract with another of a different color, but ultimately to eliminate race, not as an innocent human variety, but as ontological superiority and inferiority, as differential entitlement and privilege altogether. Yeah. Here, here. Uh, correspondingly, the racial contract demystifies the uniqueness of white racism for those who understandably see Europeans as intrinsically capital W white by locating it as the contingent outcome of a particular set of circumstances. It is proper, given both the historical record and the denial of it until recently, that white racism and white capital W whiteness should be the polemical focus of critique. But it is important not to lose sight of the fact that other subordinate racial contracts exist which do not involve white or non-white relations. In a sense, the racial contract decolorizes whiteness by detaching it from white, decolorizes capital W whiteness by detaching it from whiteness, thereby demonstrating that in a parallel universe, it could have been yellowness or capital Y yellowness, capital R redness, capital B brownness, or capital B blackness. Or, alternatively phrased, we could have had a yellow, red, brown, or black capital W whiteness. Capital W whiteness is not really a color at all, but a set of power relations. It's so important. Damn. So important. Damn. All the probably hours I've spent trying to say that, and he just booms it out. Yep. Yeah, totally. Half a paragraph. Yeah. All right. So that it is is illustrated by the only serious 20th century challenger to european domination japan as i have mentioned throughout their unique history has put the japanese in a particular position of being at different times or even simultaneously by different systems non-white by the global white racial contract white by the local nazi racial contract and a white in uh, parentheses, yellow, by their own yellow racial contract. In Asia, the Japanese have long considered themselves the superior race, oppressing the Anyu. Is that Anyu? It's, it's on both of us because I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Okay. Sorry. I'm going to say Anyu in their own country and proclaiming during the 1930s a pan-Asiatic mission to, quote, unite the yellow races under their leadership against the white Western domination. The ruthlessness displayed on both sides during the Pacific War, a war without mercy, arose in part because on both sides it was a race war, a war between conflicting systems of racial superiority, competing claims to the real whiteness, pink or yellow. The headline of one Hearst paper summed it up, the war in the Pacific is the world war, the war of oriental races against ac uh, occidental 
right? Or yeah, Occidental races for the domination of the world, as written during the Japanese occupation of China from the 1937 rape of Nanking on the yellow racial contract produced a death toll estimated by some to be as high as 10 to 13 million people. Just unbelievably brutal, terrible stuff too. Yeah, I th- the Jap- like I've, I think I've said it multiple times uh, in this book, but uh, what the Japanese did to the Chinese was every bit as brutal and vicious as any group has ever done to any other group. The, J- the Japanese just did not view the Chinese as humans, obviously, or there's no other way you could do that shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, What Axis triumph might have meant for the world is revealed in a remarkable document that survived the desperate burning of files in the last week's before the arrival in Tokyo of the occupying U.S. Army. An investigation of global policy with the Yomamata race as nucleus. Is that Yomamata? Yes, I'm the Yomamata. It may be just Yamato. I'm not Yamato. Okay, Yamato. Okay, Yamato. Okay. An investigation of global policy with the Yamato Yamato race as nucleus. Uh, Not exactly an equivalent to the infamous 1942 Nazi Wazi protocol. What is that? I think it's Vonzi. Vonzi. Okay. The Nazi Vonzi protocol uh, that put the details of the final solution into place. It does nonetheless, nonetheless, describe the, quote, natural hierarchy based on inherent qualities and capabilities of the various races of the world envisaged a global order in which the Yomata race would be the leading race, which would have to avoid intermarriage to maintain its purity, and prescribes a post-war mission of expansion and colonialization based on an ominously revised global cartography in which, for example, America emerges as, quote, Asia's eastern wing. The Yomatas and the Aryans would, post-victory, have had to fight it out to decide who the real global master race was. A couple of things, sorry. One, this, this whole line, and uh, once again, it's just me maybe not understanding stuff, but this whole line of reasoning starting with uh, uh, kind of where I ended it talking about the capital yellowness, capital redness, that sort of stuff, it almost seems to solidify that kind of Marxian theory and this could live together very well. Um, because if it's any race, then it's it's more of a power dynamic, um, you know, than it is, I, at least that's kind of how I see it. I don't know exactly if I'm missing something or if I just can't frame it correctly. But it seems like it, it's inherent that you have to take out that power structure, that inequality where some people are able to oppress and subjugate others generally due to resource inequality or technology inequality and things of that. Yeah, totally. Like race obviously plays into it, but it's the it's like he said, the systems of power that seem to result in the disgustingness um, and that race is used almost more as a just an excuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, obviously his example, the Japanese is good. Also, you know, you look at like uh, the Aztecs uh, subjugating their, um, you know, domain. Um, smaller, yeah, their domain. And the same thing with uh, the Incas, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I assume 
that there were ideas of uh, not racial purity as such, but maybe um, cultural or ethnic uh, superiority. Right. That uh, they're like, okay, we, uh, the Aztecs, are a blessed people, and therefore we get to rock shit out, you know. Good call. Uh, So there is no reason to think that other non-whites, non-yellows, would have fared much better under this version of the racial contract. The point, then, is that while the white racial contract has historically been the most devastating and the most important one in shaping the contours of the world, it is not unique and there should be no essentialist illusion about anyone's intrinsic, quote, racial virtue. All peoples can fall into capital W whiteness under the appropriate circumstances as shown by the, quote, white black Hutus 1994 massacre of half a million to a million inferior black Tutsis in a few bloody weeks in Rwanda. Um, I find it interesting that uh, inferior isn't put in quotes there. Yeah, good call. Uh, and it's also like, obviously, that's why he brought it up. But that was a massacre based almost solely on like racial and physical characteristics as well, or at least like who was chosen to be killed. I know, obviously, there was quite a bit of social interactions between the two tribes historically. But um, when they chose when the massacre happened, people were killed based off of physical characteristics. Um, Though it may appear to be such, the racial contract is not a deconstruction of the social contract. I am in some sympathy with with postmodernism politically. The iconoclastic challenge to orthodox theory, the tipping over of the white marble bus in the museum of great Western thinkers. But ultimately, I see it as an epistemological and theoretical dead end. It's symptomatic rather than diagnostic of the problems of, of the globe as we enter the new millennium. The racial contract is really in the spirit of a racially informed... What is this? <laughs> uh, ideology critique. Okay. Ideology critique, something like that. I don't know. Sorry about the accent. Don't know where it came from. Don't know what it's for. But, uh, <laughs> yep, there we go. <laughs> and thus, pro-enlightenment. Urban Habermas's radical and to-be-completed enlightenment, uh, that is, though Habermas... Habermas's Eurocentric, deraced, and de-imperialized vision of modernity itself stands in need of critique and anti-postmodernist. It criticizes the social contract from a normative base that does not see the ideals of the contractarianism themselves as necessarily problematic, but shows how they have been betrayed by white contractarians. So it assumes intertransibility, the conceptual commiserability of degraded norm and critique, and brings them together in an epistemic union that repudiates the postmodernist picture of isolated, mutually unintelligible language games. Moreover, it is explicitly predicated on the truth of a particular meta-narrative. The historical account of the European conquest of the world, which has made the world what it is today. Thus, it lays claims to truth, objectivity, realism, and description of the world as it actually is. The prescription for a transformation of that world to achieve racial justice and invites criticism on those same terms. Just that's a small sentence, but it's so important 
when, uh, you know, people say both sides are the same. And I'm sure that there are race apologists or whatever that would believe that Mills is just uh, being out there and wild. But the big difference to me is and invites criticism on those same terms. Just knowing that what you're laying forward isn't perfect, could still be worked on. It's just... Um, you know, a better exploration of what currently exists, I think is just in such stark opposition to how I generally see conservative media uh, and literature respond. You know, it's like the nuclear family is not open to criticism. The, you know, how we view societal structure is not open to criticism. And I think, you know, that's where they make missteps so often is thinking that they have the true answer, the right answer. Um, and it's, it's just so destructive. And that just, yeah, it makes me happy when I see people who are obviously as an intelligent, well-read, well-researched as Charles Mills still being like, but, you know, open to criticism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also really enjoy what he was saying here about the, um, about postmodernism, uh, the whole, uh, I am in some sympathy with postmodernism politically, the iconoclastic challenge to the orth- to orthodox theory and the tipping over the white marble bus of the museum of great uh, Western thinkers. But ultimately, I see it as an epistemological and theoretical dead end. It's uh, symptomatic uh, rather than diagnostic of the problems of the globe as we enter the new millennium. I just love that. And I could be wrong, but I just picture that he's saying that like, just even the large focus on those figures is still a problem. Oh, that- uh, oh, uh, well, that's what he's saying, you know, and that's what, uh, you know, part of the postmodernist project is. It's about um, deconstructing the, like, Western canon. I think I agree with him that, like, um, that, that project uh, does have some merit, but it, um, but... Uh, the Im- like that his his sentence there I think sums it up where he's like uh, it criticizes the social contract from a normative base that does not see the ideals of contractarianism themselves as necessarily problematic but shows how they have been betrayed by white contractarians so it's kind of like they don't understand that the whole system needs to go they're just upset with certain aspects of it mm-hmm. is that yeah. what it is I'm asking I'm, I'm not oh saying you're that's- asking no yeah. I don't think I no, I think when he's talking about that, he's talking about the racial contract. Um, okay. I think that he stops talking about uh, postmodernism when it says um, at the end of the uh, Habermas parentheses and it says uh, mm-hmm. anti-postmodernism uh, period. I think that's where it stops talking about postmodernism and moves into talking about how the racial contract is not a postmodernist project and it is superior to postmodernism and traditional contractarianism because, uh, although it is still a contractarianist idea, because it doesn't let itself be betrayed by the white contractarians. Okay. okay. Is, how I, is how I'm reading this. Yeah. But regardless, I think that um, the, the idea that postmodernism, a uh, epistemological dead end, and that it's symptomatic rather than diagnostic of um, the uh, uh, postmodern epoch that we exist in, uh, I think is is cool, and um, and I subscribe to that uh, to that reading, you know. So, okay. And anyhow, yeah, in the best tradition of oppositional materialist critique of hegemonic idealist social theory, the racial contract recognizes the actuality of the world we live in, uh, relates the construction of ideals and the non-realization of the, these ideals to the character of this world, 
to group interests and institutionalized structures and points to what would be necessary for achieving them. Thus, it unites descriptive and prescriptive fact and norm. Unlike the social contract, which is necessarily embarrassed by the actual histories of polities in which it is propagated, the racial contract starts from these uncomfortable realities. Thus, it is not like the social contract, continually forced to retreat into illusionary idealizing abstraction, the never-never land of pure theory, but can move readily between the hypothetical and the actual, the subjunctive and the uh, indicative, having no need to pretend things happened which did not, to evade and to elide and to skim over. And I guess that's kind of what I was saying, where it's like the um, postmodernists still are attached to some of those Western civilization myths and some, even in their contractarianism to it, they're still like um, not acknowledging the non-realization of those ideals. Like those ideals are so useless. There's no point in contracting them or in being contractarian to them because they never even came close to playing out as they were suggested. If that makes any sense. Okay. Um, it's kind of like what I was thinking and that the racial contract is willing to acknowledge like, no, that was all fucking nonsense, <laughs> like, mm. but maybe not. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, okay. The racial contract is intimate with the world and so is not continually astonished by revelations about it. It does not find it remarkable that racism has been the norm and that people think of themselves as raced rather than abstract citizens, which any objective history will in fact show. The racial contract is an abstraction that is this worldly showing that the problem with mainstream political philosophy is not abstraction in itself. All theory uh, definitionally requires abstraction, but abstraction that, as Orna O'Neill has pointed out, characteristically abstracts away from the things that matter, the actual causal determinants and their requisite theoretical correlates guided by by the terms of the racial contract, which has now written itself out of existence, by, but continues to affect theory and theorizing by its invisible presence. The racial contract throws open the doors of orthodox political philosophy, a hermetically sealed, stuffy little universe, and lets the world rush into its sterile white halls. A world populated not by abstract citizens, but by white, black, brown, yellow, red beings interacting with pretending not to see, categorizing, judging, negotiating, allying, exploiting, struggling with each other in large uh, measure according to race. The world, in short, in which we actually live. Boom. What a gene. <clears throat> uh, finally, the racial contract locates itself proudly in the long, honorable tradition of oppositional black theory. The theory of those who were denied the capacity to theorize, the cognitions of persons rejecting their official subpersonhood, the peculiar terms of slavery contract of the slavery contract meant that of all the different variations of subpersons, blacks were the ones most directly confronted over a period of hundreds of years with the contradictions of white theory, being both a part and not a part of the white polity, and as such epi epi <clears throat> epistemically privileged. 
The racial contract pays tribute to the insights of generations of anonymous race men and race women who, under the most difficult circumstances, often self-educated, denied access to formal training and the resources of the academy, the object of scorn and contempt from hegemonic white theory, nevertheless managed to form the concepts necessary to trace the contours of the system oppressing them, defying the mass weight of a white scholarship that either morally justified the suppression or denied its existence. Black activists have always recognized white domination, white power, what one writer in 1919 called the whiteocracy rule by whites. Has a political system of exclusion and differential privilege problematically conceptualized by the categories of either white liberalism or white Marxism, the racial contract can thus be regarded as black vernacular, literally the language of the slave, signifying on the social contract a double-voiced, two-toned, formal revision that critiques the nature of white meaning itself by demonstrating that a simultaneous but not negated parallel discursive a discursive ontological political universe exists within a larger white discursive universe. It is a black demystification of the lies of white theory, an uncovering of the clan robes beneath the white politician's three-piece suit. Damn. Ironic, cool, hip, above all knowing, the racial contract speaks from the perspective of the cognizers whose mere presence in the halls of white theory is a cognitive threat. Because, in the inverted epistemic logic of the racial polity, the ideal speech situation requires our absence, since we are literally the men and women who know too much, who in that wonderful American expression know where the bodies are buried. After all, so many of them are our own. It does what black critique has always had to do to be effective. It situates itself in the same space as its adversary, and then shows what follows them from writing race and seeing the difference it makes. As such, it makes it possible for us to connect the two rather than, as at present, have them isolated in two ghettoized spaces. Black political theories ghettoization from mainstream discussion, white mainstream theories ghettoization from reality. The struggle to close the gap between the ideal of the social contract and the reality of the racial contract has been the unacknowledged political history of the past few hundred years, the battle of the color line, in the words of W.E. Dubois, and is likely to continue being so for the near future. As racial, as racial division continues to fester, the United States moves demographically from a white majority to a non-white majority society. The chasm between a largely white first world and a largely non-white third world continues to deepen. Desperate illegal immigration from the latter to the former escalates, and demands for global justice and a new world order of global apartheid grow louder. Naming this reality brings it into, brings it into the necessary theoretical focus for these issues to be honestly addressed. Those who pretend not to see them, who claim not to recognize the picture I have sketched, are only continuing the epistemology of ignorance required by the original racial contract. As long as this studied ignorance persists, persists the racial contract will only be rewritten rather than being torn up altogether, and justice will, be continued, will continue to be restricted to just us. Woo! That's Damn. fucking awesome. Yeah, it God is. Goddamn. Goddamn. <sighs> we did it. Yeah, man. <laughs> Uh, it's yeah, good, it's dude. no, it's such a, it's just such a, you know, I guess to me, it's just crazy how, not crazy, but 
you know, 20 years, over 20 years later, it still hits just so hard. So hard. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe uh, my one hope is the fact that, and it's so hard for me because the older I get, the more I realize that I just wasn't paying attention and that when you don't pay attention, things seem a lot nicer than they are at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's very hard for me to really understand whether it seems like race was more hidden in the 90s than it is now um, or if I just wasn't paying as much attention, obviously being a child. Yeah, being a child and also where we lived uh, Mm -hmm. and and the lack of social media, right? Um, Like nowadays when when uh, dudes when a black man gets shot by the cops there's video of it you know right uh in the 90s there was very it was very rare for there to be video of it and uh and then if there's no video it's not like it's getting reported in the news you know right um, and if you even like looked to the court cases you'd be like oh well these cops right. obviously aren't doing anything yeah. wrong they're not getting in trouble right yeah um, so but um, it's just cool that uh, that we're compl- we've completed the text. Um, yeah. I think uh, we'll probably do uh, a little episode, um, just going uh, uh, like doing an overview, talking yeah, about our thoughts, our, our thoughts. Yep, yep. Um, Since and, we uh, have not done that at all while reading this, we figured we'd uh, right, yeah, yeah bless exactly. you with them at the end. Exactly, uh. exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so uh, I look forward to to uh, doing that next time. Yeah, and and thanks for for sticking with us on this journey, and, and as always, have a great day.